Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, it's Lainey. It's Duanna. And welcome to Show Your Work. We are here. We're ready. We're launching ourselves into the weekend. It, yes, it is the um, in, well, here in Canada, it's the weekend before Canada Day. Right. Which is always just before um, 4th of July, Independence right. Day weekend. And so I feel like this is the time of year where no one really wants to work. <laughs> um, everything kind of slows down. You don't really get answers to anything until… Oh, there's definitely no… Yeah. Like July 10th? Maybe. There's a pause period for sure. There are people who take the long weekend. There are people who try to out-psych the traffic and take the other long weekend. Yeah. I feel a bit… I feel a bit… Do you ever feel like you're a little bit jinxed? I don't know where this falls in your astrology life or what. Uh, but I have been having more struggles than is necessary to get like the backyard ready for people to come and hang and that yeah. kind of thing and deliveries and whatnot. Uh, and now today I have people coming tonight for a backyard hang. I need to like go get outdoor lights and whatnot. And it's going to be really like cool this evening. And so I feel a bit thwarted. I want this to yeah. be the big summer kickoff. And yeah. I think there's going to be sweatshirts. <laughs> I don't mind a sweatshirt on a summer night. Like, I generally find that I don't like being sticky. Oh, see, yeah, that's a thing for you. But no, I like a real, I like a real sticky time. No, I don't like being sticky. And also at night, I don't like mosquitoes. So it, when it's a sweatshirt night, it means that, like, chances are lower that I'm going to get bitten. What is your favorite season, would you say? Fall. Okay. Is this just, are we all just narcissists? Is it your favorite season because that's when your birthday is? No. It's like, because the clothes are the best in the fall. No, see, I don't agree. Uh, I don't agree that that's my favorite season. What's Summer favorite is my season? favorite season. Okay. And it is, I mean, part of it has to do with my birthday and some like lingering effects or whatever, but it also has to do with the clothes. Like the summer, summer clothes are way better. Like. I disagree. I like layers, as you know. Yeah, I don't <laughs> like that. Like. I like layers upon layers and layers that you can take off and versatility with clothing. And with summer, you, can, you can't wear a fucking turtleneck. No, exactly, which is great. Like with summer, everything is so simple. And so each piece has to be kind of perfect because there's no disguising and jacketing and whatnot. Um, you can take layers on and off from like September 15th way right through most of May. Uh, summer is its own exclusive thing. That's why I like it the best. And there's no leather jackets in the summer. Exactly, which is great. Which you can just my walk thing. out the door in what you're wearing. No. And I like I find footwear way more versatile in, in, in the fall. I mean, you know, in the summer, you can't do a boot. Agreed. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I that's, like a boot. I don't like being yeah, but you like socks in the house. Correct. I don't understand. I have cold feet all the time. I'm not wearing socks right now and my toes are cold. But yeah, I 
fashion and everything in the fall is and everything's cozy. Don't get me wrong. Like I like a back to school outfit with the best of them. But the there's nothing as seductive as going, I guess I'm going out now and stepping into your shoes and walking out the door. No I don't like coats, the psychological no pressure this. of summer either. Like, like you have to get up early because you're like, it's so sunny out. It's so nice. We have to do shit. And then it stays light forever and ever. And like you feel guilty if you're not outside or you're not doing shit. Whereas like in the fall and winter, you're like, nah, I don't feel like it. I think you just need to adapt your methods. You can do everything outside. You can work outside. You can see people outside. It's- I don't know how you do it, the work outside thing, because I can't fucking see my screen. This is why I've gone through so much trouble with the backyard. But like, yeah, shading is is a thing. You need shade. You need angles. But, you know, put some work into it. You can do it. No, I'm not going to work to work. Like, that's ridiculous. You are contradicting everything you've ever said, including, I think, a (laughs) preamble last week or the week before. Um, I sort of agree with you in that you want to work easier, but I think you're missing out. Go outside. Okay, fine. We will disagree on this. P.S. At the end of this podcast, I need to speak to you about a carryover from Sasha's podcast about pussies. Well, you've brought it onto the table. We got to talk about it now. Okay, should we? Maybe we should get the pussies out of the way. I, I, it's like Chekhov's pussy. Like once you bring it on stage, you got to have it go off. So on the Sasha Answers podcast, we talked about Jada Pinkett Smith talking about how she's in her forties, but she has a sixteen-year-old pussy, and so there's this whole thing like vagina rejuvenate, like vagina rejuvenate. Rejuvenation? Yeah. Yeah, Vagina rejuvenation. This is a tricky thing to say. Anyway, so then we started talking about pussies. No, but I need background. Does she say that – is this a a mental state or did she get a surgery? I can't give you background because that's what we were trying to analyze. Did she mean tightening the inside? Right. Did she mean cosmetic surgery on the outside? And then at the end of the podcast, it emerged that like Sash, number one, calling her out, did not know that beef curtains actually refers to labia. What did she think it referred to? Like the mound. Like that's the not, outside. No, that's yeah. not a thing. That's not a curtain. Exactly. Okay. And that when people do reconstructive surgery on their pussies, like cosmetically, it's on the labia because they'll, they feel that, you know, it hangs down too low and it's not pretty enough, like porn star styles. Yeah. The, yeah that's the most popular. Yes. Yes. Go on. And then we talked about like the internal tightening. Yes. Um, and why it needs to happen because isn't it elastic? And in theory, it should go back to maybe not like virginal tightness, but it's not like you're going to have a baby and then not be able to feel a dick inside you, right? But we don't know. So. Right. Okay. Um, I love that you come to me for an anatomy lesson. Um, I, I'm just saying there's something you've done that I've never done before. Yeah, I know. But it also brings back the time when we were talking about, uh, twins and, uh, when cells kind of spontaneously divide and you incredulously said, so they can just decide to be twins (laughs) as though you'd never have had a health class before. It made me really happy. Um, so yeah, of course the elastic can and does go back to the way it is in terms of, yes, absolutely. Um, and like maybe there are some sort of whatever, like internal shifts, but that they're not always bad. That said, we're really getting into it now. What a lot of people talk about in terms of rejuvenation or tightening post 
childbirth is not from like the pass through. It's the tearing that can result, right? Right. So that can happen. And depending on how that happened and what it's like, uh, you know, the reconstructive surgery that you have on the day can be uh, maybe not as refined because there can be other trauma. For example, if you have a baby and there's terrible tearing, but there's also like, you know, a lot of blood loss and like uh, blood pressure or preeclampsia or whatever, and the baby's in distress, people aren't worrying about the aesthetics of how your vagina and vulva look, right? So sometimes people are going back to uh, that kind of reconstruction uh, because of the job that was done on the tear in the moment. Sure. But in theory, no tearing, that part of your body should be able to perform that work and then also perform the work of sex after where you get pleasure out of it. Yes. Yeah. Like, so anyway, that's what we were discussing. That said, because I got a lot, a lot of letters about people saying, thank you for talking about pregnancy and, and, uh, with regard to Serena Williams and us talking about this uh, a while back. A few episodes ago. And her body and so forth. Uh, the thing that people don't talk about because you can't talk about it because everybody has a sample size of one, unless you're like a gynecologist, is like not everything is always identical to the way it was before, either physically or like, I don't know, internal feel. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it's not as good or better. Like sometimes different is just different. Well, speaking of identical, the most important thing, question I have for you is, can you pick your pussy out of a lineup? Mine? I think. Like, I would assume. How often are you mirroring that shit? Because what Sash and I shared, what we have in common, is I haven't looked at my pussy in a long, long, long ass time. Perhaps we should change that because probably you need to like look at it and see changes in it and whatever. But like, you know, for those people who are doing it cosmetically because they're like, oh my God, my pussy's not pretty enough. I don't know if my pussy's pretty. Like, I haven't checked on her prettiness in, like, probably 25 years, maybe longer. Yeah, I think it's kind of the opposite, right? Like, I think the people who think it's not pretty enough are maybe looking a lot and comparing to the wealth of, you know, vaginas and vulvas that you can see online every day. Yeah. Um, Which, I don't know. You don't know what kind of Photoshop they're doing on those. Like, I don't know. Um, Could I pick it out of a lineup? I I don't know, I guess. Like, but could you pick your ass out of a lineup? Like, at a certain point, all bums look like bums, But at least when you stand up and turn around and look in the mirror, you have, like, a very clear view of your ass. Yeah, but I still think your pussy takes work to look at. Yes, but I also think it's, like, contextual, right? Like, uh, how much are we talking about what you can recognize? I think that could you pick it out of a lineup? is, you know, it extends to like... Okay, like mine is completely hairless. So in so a lineup... Is, so are a million people. Okay, so in a lineup of 10 hairless pussies, could I pick my pussy out of a lineup? I'm going to say no. I am shocked at where we've gone here, but I think it's about context, right? I think it depends on literally the work of... See the link there? I think it literally depends on the work of the photographer. How close are we? Because I, I'm going to say like... Okay, 10 Asian hairless pussies. Yeah, no, no, no. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like, can we see like, I don't know, the scar on your upper thigh that you got when you jumped off a dock one no, time? No, you're and... literally just looking at the flower. No, of course not. Yeah. No, which I think is fine. 
Me too. But at the same time, this was like our overall point. Like, Jesus, for the people who are, I mean, part of it is the porn industry too, where, you know, you're talking about women who are like, oh, it's such a beautiful pussy. But at the same time, like, who's this for? Because do you know a guy who looks at a pussy at the moment where he gets to Or a woman and is like, nope. And is like, no, this pussy's ugly? No. No, but it's like anything, right? Like any, I don't know if you have people who have had cosmetic procedures performed that you can see uh, and they're like, oh, I really need to whatever, have my ears pinned back or whatnot. And you're like, okay, I guess if you want. And it doesn't mean anything to you, right? But they notice the thing. I'm going to go ahead and say, I assume the people who go ahead and have like labial surgery have whatever it is that has been bothering them for a long time, not just since the day that they discovered Pornhub and decided to compare and contrast, right? Like, is that a fair enough thing to say? That like, I think if you have- I think that someone put it in their head. Sure, but I'm saying like, but I'm going to suggest that like, if you have a thing that's always annoyed you about your physicality and then, you know, yes, you learn that, I don't know, so-and-so had their ears pinned back or Jada Pinkett Smith had her labia trimmed or whatever. It's not until then that you're like, oh, that's a thing. I could fix this thing that's always annoyed me. Got it. Does that, do you know what I mean? Yep. So basically though, the answer is no, you couldn't. No, nor do I. You couldn't ID it. No, but I'm also happy enough with it being anonymous. You know what I mean? Like it's, I think that's cool. (laughs) All right. All right. Thank you for clearing that up. Anytime. I think I'm (laughs) glad that we went down that rabbit hole. I think. Now here's my segue. Yes. Go. Celebrity vaginal reconstruction surgery costs money. (laughs) And our opening story of the day is money and celebrities. Specifically, this article in the cut that talks to an accountant, a celebrity accountant, who talks about how and what is involved in her job. Sure. Uh, you know, yeah, sure. I'll give you that segue. I will Thank I'll you. go ahead and say that, sure, you landed that one. No problem. Yeah, you sent me this, and it was one of those things that I kind of knew I was going to love even before I ever read it. The headline is, I stop celebrities from blowing their money, which is a gorgeous headline right off the top. Beautiful. And it's one of those things where uh, we get the brief bio of this woman, Kristen Lee, who uh, is only 35 and manages finance, manages finances for, quote, a mix of high-level artists and entertainers, actors, recording artists, producers, writers, and athletes with personal net worths ranging from $1 million to $50 million, and she can't name names obviously. So here we go. And she tells all these stories. And was there, were there surprises here for you? It's, it's never surprising, I guess, because we've talked about money and celebrities before on our show. What I liked that was one of the things that came out or, you know, um, jumped out specifically at me in terms of what she addressed was insurance. Interesting. Um, I don't think, number one, I don't think insurance is the sexiest thing. You know, like when we Correct. have art. Yeah. 
when we have articles about celebrity money management, oftentimes they're related to, let's say, the Johnny Depp example right now, where he's suing his former management company for mishandling of money, and we get all these details about the extravagance, the houses, the boats, the art, the wine, the whatnot. And that obviously feeds our inner gossips, right? We want to know, like, how these people are living, and this this excess um, is grotesque in a way, and it it sort of draws us in that way. But the sexy details, insurance is not included in there. No, and because insurance is, and I say this as somebody whose parents worked in insurance for my entire life, insurance is money paid so that things don't happen. That's right. Right? Like the other side of insurance is like, car crash, mm-hmm. health crises. Those are not happy things, but they're at least interesting things to talk about. But insurance yep. is the boringness of it not happening. That's right. And so she, Kristen, actually brings that up. Like that's one of the paragraphs here is about insurance. And she says one thing that's surprisingly inexpensive for a lot of our clients is health insurance. The insurance policy for members of SAG-AFTRA is amazing. For the money, it is the best for the money, it is the best health insurance out there. It's only about $400 per quarter for an individual. So you're looking at about 1200 or 1500 a year for the best PPO coverage in the country. It travels with you everywhere and you have access to emergency care facilities and 24/7 mental health care. It's great. I wish I could get it. Now this is sort of Again, the unsexy part of it, right? That celebrities too have to worry about insurance. Perhaps more so. When you have more, you have to insure more, right? You have to protect more. Um, well, I don't want to say more so, of course, because I understand there are people living below the you know income line who desperately need it. But what I'm like comparatively in terms of um, what they're trying to protect and that sort of uh, stable of assets. Um, it's so interesting because we think that these are sh- these are things that celebrities or at least our movie stars, the bold-faced names that we think about, they don't have to worry about it. But here's an accountant saying, oh, no, 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 the union, one of the great things about the union, and we know about the SAG Awards, and we know that um, m- many celebrities, most of them are members, right? I mean, you have to be a member. You have to be. There used to be two unions, SAG and AFTRA, and then they, they joined, and I think uh, I don't know the ins and outs of it beyond SAG is easier to say, um, Screen Actors Guild. But yeah, you have to be in it. Uh, and then coming with that is uh, the all the benefits. Yeah. Um, and this applies uh, certainly in Canada as well. I don't know about Britain, but I would assume uh, the Writers Guild is in the same... The Writers Guild is a union, for example, as the Directors Guild is a union and so forth. And they're in the same... Uh, insurance group mm-hmm. company as the actors and so forth. And yeah, it's really good. One yeah. of the things that allows uh, actors and writers and directors uh, to maybe pursue unstable work a lot of the time is that there have been people in yeah in unions who have fought for decades to have coverage that's really comprehensive, to have stuff that can borrow against your previous earnings, like Mm -hmm. to qualify you to keep the same level of insurance, even if you didn't make that much that year. So like, even if you think about like Julia Roberts, for example, of course she can afford whatever. Yeah. But let's say she couldn't for the sake of argument, right? She makes, whenever she made whatever last movie, uh, you know, say pre-Money Monster, I don't know, what did she make? Charlie Wilson's War? Yeah. And then she doesn't work for 10 years, right? And proceeds to have three children and all the rest of it. And her health coverage, 
uh, which of course probably covers her spouse and her whole family and whatever, is based on, well, you have enough sort of built up that you can have that same coverage from years ago, even though on paper she's not making, she's making zero dollars between, I don't know, 2007 and 2015, arguably. Yes? Yeah. So it's not based on how much you make that year or qualifying each year, but going back. Um, yeah, it's good. It's good insurance. And it's good intel in, in understanding the mundane of celebrity too, that there are different levels of actor, there are different levels of celebrity that, yes, as you said, Julia Roberts can do whatever, but your, you know, emerging actor who's just starting out with a three-episode arc on a 10-episode series actually has, by virtue of their SAG membership, doesn't have to worry about the insurance. As long as you're in the union and keeping yeah. up with your union dues, which are usually, usually pretty reasonable. Yeah, it's something that is built in to uh, the union's contracts and the health contracts because it's endemic to the life of an actor or a musician or anybody who's kind of itinerant. I've really been wanting to use itinerant for a <laughs> long time. What stood out to you? I think what stood out to me most was the, uh, I think the mundanity of what people spend their money on. One mm-hmm. of the first questions is like, well, where does the money go? Yeah. Uh, and she's like, oh, you know, it goes on like renovations, cars, shoes, clothes, etc. One of the things that didn't come up that I was like, where is this is she didn't say it goes on private planes or travel. Like if I had unlimited money, I would be gone every other day. I would be living like that, uh, that scam artist that people love to talk about yeah. right now, that Anna Delcy. Yeah. I would be gone all the time. I would be like, I, you know what? I'm, I can't, but can we meet in Mykonos next week? Can we make it work that way? Yeah. That would be my MO. And so I was surprised that there was less of that involved. Oh, um, no, but there was in the sense of, do you remember the part where she talks about the Ubers? Yeah, but that's kind of what I mean. Like, I, I think how, I think what was interesting about this article is how close stars who allegedly have huge paychecks are to not having huge paychecks at all. Yeah. Like, I have had months when I've had too many Ubers, yes? Yes. Or in my case, Uber Eats. Uh, yeah. That's a big, that's a problem. And the warnings about that seemed really pedestrian, I guess. Yeah. Like, wow, it's pretty close to home, this problem that they're having. Like, Oh, really? no, like 6000 Like, her quote was that she would say to a client, you spent 6000 on Ubers this month. If you keep doing that, you'll spend 72000 on Ubers this year. Now, I'm neither one of us is spending that much on Ubers, but in relative terms, yeah. comparatively, yeah, like if, you know, there have been weeks when I've probably gone a hundred bucks on an Uber. Of course. It's a hundred bucks a week. So let's say $400, $400 a month. What? That's 12. That's $48,000 or sorry, $4,800 a year, $4,800 a year on Ubers if that were just to continue. Yeah. Just because you're being lazy. like Or going out and drinking. Yes. Like, <laughs> do you want to spend five grand there? Or on a week's vacation or whatever it is. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, like I guess that's the thing. The luxuries that they're spending on are small. And I'm sure the accountant, if they were here, would be like, that's the point. It's not huge expenditures. It's not taking 50 people on a cruise somewhere. It's the small 
indulgences that add up and cause a problem. One of the things also that jumped out at me was how naive many of them are. Um, And I'm not talking about naivete as in financial literacy. I'm talking about the fact that they too are the kind of people, and they're already in the world, who are looking at their Instagram, or sorry, the Instagram accounts of their peers, and they're seeing their peers, other celebrities, as she said, sitting courtside at a basketball game, or wearing this or wearing that, and they they don't re- recognize that that's for free. That either they are not getting the same opportunities and offers to go to the same places and wear the same things, or that um, that is not a lifestyle that they are able to do right now. It's really interesting because you think like that's their world and we're on the outside of it and that they would know everything about each other, but clearly some of them don't understand how it works either. Right. Like another example she gives is that, oh, you want to be in all the latest designer stuff just like so-and-so who maybe you think is a a performer at your same level or whatever, but that person was sent a free box of clothes to, you know, wear the latest in designer labels from that line all season. They're not going and paying retail at Fred Siegel for it or whatever. Yeah. yeah, it, you're right in the sense that you'd think that would be more obvious to them, but uh, but I I think probably it's about, yeah, it's about level and leverage, right? If you see, again, if I see Julia Roberts doing something I can't afford, I'm like, yeah, no kidding. If I see somebody whose, you know, latest movie at the box office did kind of the same as my movie did at the box office, I'm like, oh, she's walking around in the latest X, Y, and Z. I feel like I should be able to, not, hey, maybe I should talk to her business manager Mm -hmm. because that person is making her some deals, you know? Well, here's the real world application to that, is that aren't we seeing that in real life with, um, I mean, we live in Toronto and we've talked so much about home prices in Toronto Mm. and mortgages Mm -hmm. and what someone you thought was at a similar position at the law firm or the architecture firm or the engineering firm or the investment bank what they're able to afford, the car they're driving, the neighborhood they're living in, the amount of bedrooms they have in their home. And you're like, what the fuck? How come my house is like in a shittier neighborhood, way smaller, I don't have parking, and I can only do this with my car? Right. And the answer to that is you will never know all the scenarios, right? You'll never know about the family money. You'll never know about like who, I don't know, has a like a side accounting job. Um who that's bringing them in extra cash in lean times. You never know everything about what somebody's up to mm-hmm. or like who's married to a, a in somebody independently wealthy yeah. or whatever. Um, again, I always come back to Nicole Cliff, who we've talked about on the yeah. podcast before, who was one of the two co, uh, co like creators, owners of the website, The Toast, who was super clear uh, when the toast folded about the fact that the only reason they were able to maintain it for as long as they were was that her spouse, who had made a lot of money through ventures that I don't think we're privy to, uh, was bankrolling it. That it wasn't like, hey, you too can start up a quirky, fun website about writing. Yeah. There's always going to be stuff behind the scenes that you don't see or don't know. 
you know, Reese Witherspoon comes to mind. Reese Witherspoon came from an incredibly privileged background before she ever arrived at, in Hollywood. You know, the rags to riches was already starting on third base, just to really mix up my metaphors, right? Um, so, yeah, you never know all the things, but you start comparing yourself in a one-to-one scenario. Uh, and the other social media angle on that is me looking at people, I don't know, posting, you know, drinks out on a Friday afternoon. I'm like, mm, I'm working. Why aren't I out on a patio on a Friday afternoon? Oh, yeah. I feel that. You know, and you don't know, like, I don't know, were they fired? Are they, like, not doing what they're supposed to be doing? Are they, like, is the post from a week ago and they're actually, like, in their cubicle? It, it takes more than you would ever expect it does to kind of remind yourself of that stuff all the time. I, to me too, I think what, why it's important to have these conversations and why I appreciate this woman, as you said, who's what, 35 years old. Mm -hmm. And as she says, breaking the mold of how people in her industry and in this industry used to behave, um, is, Another sort of argument in favor of like the millennial point of view. Do you know what I mean? Like she talks about how the old way of money management in Hollywood was to keep the stars sort of innocent of the boring banking shit. Let me take care of it. You just go and be an artist. And she was like, no, 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 that is not the approach that, no, that is not what we're doing now. What we're doing now is also educating you. I want to take care of your money, but I want to educate you on why I'm taking care of your money this way and why you should care about taking care of your money. And I do think that that is more of a millennial approach than other generations where even in our family lives, it was taboo to have children be talked to or be brought into conversations with their parents about about money. I mean, you and I have talked about this, I think, both on and off the podcast, that that maybe is a, a more North American point of view, right? That yeah. that wasn't necessarily the case growing up in immigrant households or in households where, uh, put it this way, if your family doesn't have money, I think it's no secret. I think the people who weren't talking about money or weren't taught to talk about money are the people who had it. Um, and so that preserved innocence is a privilege in and of itself of the relatively well-to-do, right? But then it gives makes. But then it makes you unprepared Agreed. to go out there yeah. to have conversations about money, to be understanding of people who don't have money. If you don't have money, then to figure out and get more information as you know in terms of how to make it, how to take care of it. Here's a woman who what ranges in that millennial range, right? Sure. 35 is like, no, no, in my generation, or I'm extrapolating here and doing a lot of assuming, but most of the millennials, the young millennials I speak to are quite, are quite literate when it comes to understanding, I don't know, savings and understanding percentages and understanding all of that because it's, it's getting harder and harder. Well, here's what was most fascinating to me about this is I don't know what you think would be your biggest indulgence in if you were suddenly like, you know, 11 figures rich tomorrow, like where would your biggest problem spot be? What would you spend the money on? Clothes and planes. Sure. Yeah. Um, like not an actual plane, but I would 
like I would only exclusively fly business class. Well, obviously, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so expensive. It's crazy. It's crazy expensive, for sure. But I think that if I had more money, my first thing that I would want to do would be to retain the services of somebody like this full time. She really doesn't act as just a business manager or an accountant. I have an accountant who I love, who I talk to intensely for about two weeks every year before my taxes are due. Yeah. But he's not on the phone every week being like, eh, maybe you should put a little money over here. Maybe you should or shouldn't take that job or maybe you should save for this or that. Um, everything we know about finance and everything that people are taught doesn't apply to the completely mercurial lifestyle of people who are paid when they're paid for the thing that they do. You yeah. know, she talks about how an album might give you an eight-figure advance, but it's meant to be two years of living money, and that includes paying all your staff and everything else. Yeah. Um, I would want this person at my side, especially because she extends into – she's very clear that she – you know, she says sometimes I become more of a friend and I'm often advising and not just teaching. I think there is probably an immense opportunity for somebody who is kind of money-minded like this person to be a financial advisor to people who don't look like they have money. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. I feel like there are uh, disruptors, uh, another word I'm overusing recently, who are trying to make this happen or like wealth simple or whatever, but... If you could brand yourself as a a money manager to uh, millennials or a money manager to the broke, I feel like that would be a huge, huge opportunity to fill. But also here, I think the lesson too is about work and success and what happens when you become successful. Um, you know, along the way, you do things yourself, Right along the way to getting to that level of success. You handle all of it yourself. And once you reach a certain level of success, part of learning how to be successful is to identify who can help you maintain it and get to the next level. There are certain responsibilities and things that you did along the way that you have to let go of. I mean, yeah, for sure. I, I agree with that. You mean like in terms of like looking over every little number in the books and that kind of thing? Yeah. For sure. I, I hear that and I agree with that. But I guess I think of it kind of the opposite way where, you know, no matter how much money you're making, uh, you, if you're able and, you know, in the health insurance conversation applies here, you entrust your teeth to a dentist. You don't try to do your own dental work, right? You entrust your car to a mechanic or whatever. I'm saying I think it would be great to have somebody at all levels to entrust your money to, even if you're clearing, you know, I don't know, $42,000 a year at your entry-level job in insert industry, and people are trying to tell you that that's like, oh, it's such a wonderful salary and opportunity for the pers uh, person of your age, like whatever. Yeah, I think that I, and what I'm trying to say is it's difficult on both ends of that. At mm -hmm. the beginning of success and when success has arrived and more of it, you want to cultivate more of it and you want to grow more of it. Because at the beginning, let's say you're making an entry-level salary, you're like, well, shit, I'm not actually making that much money. How can I siphon off already the little that I have to pay 
an accountant to look over for me. For sure. To save what I'm That's supposed right. to save, all those things. And then by the time you become successful, you say to yourself, I've been doing it this way all along. You know, I've already built up this muscle. It's hard to let go of the things that have brought you success and the way that you've done things successfully all along to be able to jump to the next plateau. Right. But then it comes to something that you have always said to me, which I don't know if you made this up or you adapted it from somebody, but there's a great line that you've used where you're like, yeah, but at a certain point, if it comes down to time versus money, you have to choose time. And this is what it becomes for these celebrities, right? If you are... Uh, or even a working person, a working actor, writer, whatever, if you are necessarily on set from 8 a.m. till 4 the next morning uh, and you have to return in 12 hours, you're not spending that time like carefully combing through your books. It makes more sense to pay somebody regardless of how successful it's been for you up to that point uh, than to not, you know, or if you have to arrive somewhere overnight and be ready to go in the morning, like cough up for business class, even though it is so expensive because you have a better chance of being rested as opposed to crammed in a middle seat somewhere. I think that that is the interesting work dynamic of it. It is hard to do that for a lot of people. It's hard on lots of levels. I'm, I know many people who have difficulty with it. Um, I'm married to one of them. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, so Yasik has always been that do-it-yourself kind of person. And there are times when our business has bur- like has been growing and, and sort of bursting at the seams. And we've realized, okay, we need to delegate and pay and make that investment so that we can take the business to the next level. But the key is to recognize it before you're bursting at the seams. For sure. And the other way, right? Like you say, and by the same token, if you are, say, you know, the lead on a teen series that suddenly blows up and blah, 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 and you're getting movie offers, great. Yes. Like, you know, work with an accountant. I think about the person who is fourth or fifth billed on that show, who is making a fraction of the star's salary, who's working and who intends to keep working but feels like, well, okay, I have X amount of dollars and I want to take my business to the next level. Do I put the money in the clothes that get me photographed? Do I put the money in the publicist who will get me a spread in us? Or do I put the money in what seems like the least sexy place, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to a financial manager or whatever, who's going to help me hang on to it? Yeah. But then maybe I'm not getting any further ahead yeah. than, than I could. It's it's a legitimately tough decision and all the blogs in the world and all the like, you know, books about personal finance don't address the specificity of what it's like mm-hmm. in this business. So that's one of the reasons it was so yeah. attractive. And it's in all businesses. Like I have a friend right now who has just opened, like a, had a great, great business idea, has just opened a gym mm-hmm. and it's growing very quickly it was a grassroots family business. She was doing it with a partner. And that kind of stress, number one, on anybody is, is, is so, it's like, it's so overwhelming. But then you have to pick the right, that key moment to be able to get the help when you need to, invest a little bit more in getting that kind of help so that you kind of offload the hours that you're spending between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. on balancing the books. 
Totally. And, you know, that's if you have a model for what you want to do or what you want to be. Um, you know, I think the the other part of this is that if you are an aspiring musician, you can kind of look at Adele's career path and say, well, I want to be Adele. But you can't recreate that. Everybody's path, especially in these industries, is for only one person. And you don't necessarily have a model to to jump on. Uh, and it it doesn't always roll the same way for each person. So it's uh, it's challenging for sure. Well, especially in this era of female entrepreneurs as, you know, the, the, the imagination of what jobs there are out there for women is growing and growing. And we're seeing so many women like online, it's exploding, right? Like, you know, there are so many articles and I love them all about how the internet has really been this fertile ground for women to de- develop new careers. But as you said, there's no roadmap. And many women, you're probably listening out there, you're opening your bakeries, you're opening, you're, you're starting your websites, you are opening your own Etsy stores. Um, and there hasn't been that book that, you know, that book that everybody would like, I don't know, seven steps to success or whatnot, that immediately addresses these very specific, as you said, these very specific nuanced um, ways in which new business and especially women in new business are carving out their territory. So um, it's obviously an ongoing discussion, um, and I think you can only really dig deep and get to solutions in these discussions if you're willing to be comfortable in talking about money. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Well, maybe that's the the crux of the whole thing, right? This is why people feel weird about it because they want to not have to think about money when it's there and when it's not there. So they put it all off on their accountant. So then they're surprised when she says, no, you can't just buy two jet skis or, you know, you can't just do whatever. But I think when I say the do whatever, again, what I was so surprised by in this article is how small the expenditures were that raise her eyebrows. Mm -hmm. Uh, She talks about calling one actor whose Amex bill comes directly to her and saying, there's three grand on here from such and such a hotel. And the dude said, oh, yeah, I just, you know, I went a little nuts at the at the bar one night and I bought a whole bunch of people drinks and so forth. And you're going, that's really small. Like for people to retain her, you'd think they had enough of a, of a net worth that three grand is not going to be that big a deal, but it's that sort of thing of mind the pennies, you know, like watch the small expenditures. Mm-hmm. Uh, small, three grand is not small. I do not want anybody yeah. to get a, you know, a skewed perspective of my life. But for them, you can see yeah. how easily three grand would add up. But that you have to watch even those small things in order for the big things, like for there to be big money there. Well, and I think that's why I appreciate always every time you bring up Nicole Cliff and all the times that you've sent over her tweets, um, 
I think it was a few months before the toast announced that they were shutting down. She had a Twitter thread in which she broke down, you know, the ins and outs financially of her business. This is the same one you're talking about. You know, here's why we've been able to stay afloat. My husband has money and he has injected money into the business because this is what we've been spending on. This is what we pay writers. This is what our server costs are. Um, oftentimes I think all of us were innocent to the internet where you just go to a website and you're like, oh, somebody just wrote someone, something on a Word document and pressed the button and it just went up there. No, there are, I mean, I know this intimately, um, you know, there are server costs that amount to thousands and thousands of dollars a month, depending on what your monthly traffic is. You want to pay people fairly and Nicole Cliff and the Toast always had a really, really great platform for introducing new female voices online. And those women were compensated in many different ways, both financially and platformally. <laughs> um, and so I, I want to be, I want us to join, yeah, the ongoing circle of women who are out there talking about money and saying, hey, we can do this. We can have these kinds of conversations with each, with each other that won't compromise our work and won't compromise our security. And it's the same, it goes back to the same discussion we were having a few weeks ago about, about sharing salaries, about talking about the money, getting more information. But always about also sharing, uh, to your point, the non-sexy costs, right? Even if you, like if you're Nicole Cliff or whoever and you're like, I got new headshots, people are like, that's okay. That's a good business outlay. Mm -hmm. But servers do not sound sexy. No. Or I always think about Margot Robbie who, you know, we're like, oh my God, she like made, she made I, Tanya herself and for no money and it was so little. But I always think about how a big stress for her, she told to, I think the Hollywood Reporter a few months ago, was that she has to retain a lot more security than she would prefer because she played Harley Quinn or yeah. plays Harley Quinn, right? And there are people who want to be in her space, even though that's not necessarily the kind of profile she wants to yeah. keep. She's not like, I'm a super glamorous, like, movie star. Yeah. But once you do those films, you need that kind of privacy uh, and, and protection. That's also not a sexy cost. No. Again, that's insurance. You're paying for things not to happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, talking about the non-sexy places that the money goes, uh, to your reps when you feel like they haven't done much for you recently or uh, whatever, to house your millions of cars, I guess, you know, those are the unsexy costs that, that go places. It's not all, I guess that's my other point is that the money is not all going on once. Yeah. A lot of it is going to keeping the machine running. Well, the unsexy aspect of it is certainly, I think, a relatively new thing in entertainment. The, the adage or the, you know, the, the way to go in the past used to be just give them the sparkly. You don't want to pull back the curtain and expose the mechanics behind the job. And so these kinds of talks about insurance and about how much you pay writers and server costs, all of that is counter to that old system of not wanting to de-sparkle what was sparkly. And yet, I think as the entertainment industry in particular has evolved, we are more sophisticated in so many ways. Back in the day, you watched a movie or a show, you didn't care about the showrunner. It was just the story that's on the screen. 
Now, over the last decade, the showrunners themselves, the writers' work, the producers' work, the set designers' work has become content and content that people want to consume. So we are getting articles and interviews that involve not just the star, so the person who appears on your screen, but we're also getting articles that involve the director, the producer, and the showrunner. And this, to me, is a really, really exciting evolution in our industry. Right. So obviously, I think what's most interesting about that is that as that happens, those people... The people who are focused on, you're right, are different. It's not just the stars. But those people then become celebrities in and of their own right, which I think is super, super fascinating. Um, Who weren't sexy before. But stand by five minutes and now they are. Yeah. Uh, So, of course, that takes us to our next topic, which is a really fascinating conversation with Marty Noxon and... Gillian Flynn, although you planted doubt in my head that maybe it was Gillian Flynn. Yeah. I I heard somewhere that it may have been Gillian Flynn, so, um, and yes, we could easily Google this, but it's more fun when you tell us. So right. <laughs> You get at us. Yeah. Uh, they give an interview along with Amy Adams uh, about the upcoming Sharp Objects limited series, although there's an asterisk involved because Mm -hmm. even though it's based on a book, like everything that is a limited series these days and based on a single book is like, yeah, or maybe it isn't. So stand by on that. But both those first two names that I mentioned, Marty Noxon and Gillian or Gillian Flynn, uh, are not household names or weren't. But in the past year, in the past few years, they've become more and more the actual draws. The content creators have been the draws. And that's really true in this article. Like Amy Adams is great, but she's along for the ride here. Like she has one interesting quote that we'll talk about, but this is really about the rise of women who you didn't know becoming people that you do. And a couple in jobs that weren't traditionally sexy. Right. In terms of getting the cover of the magazine or the headline. Uh, so if you've been living under a rock, of course, Gillian Gillian Flynn uh, has written many books, uh, the most famous of which is probably uh, is probably Gone Girl, which became, you know, the huge movie. And Marty Noxon, who, uh, you know, has become a name, I would say just in the past year or two, Right. Uh, is showrunning Sharp Objects, showrun, showrunner of Dietland, which I've been very much enjoying on AMC. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Uh, and, of course, has Buffy and Mad Men cred behind her. Unreal, unreal cred. yeah. Yep. Uh, so now these are known names. And the more we talk about them, the more they become known names, which gets them to be powerful, which is why uh, a couple of weeks ago we talked about the female showrunner roundtable, Uh, And they were mostly unknown names in those roundtables. But the more we talk about them, the more they become these celebrities and headline makers like a Shonda, like a, you know, a Judd Apatow, a whatever. Um, So it's kind of with that context that we read this article. And it's really clear that, yeah, the the women with the zingers uh, are both of the women who aren't Amy Adams. Yeah. Were you surprised by that going in? Well... Here's what I guess surprised and annoyed me is that, of course, this was in The Hollywood Reporter. 
It's Amy Adams who gets the pretty, pretty photo shoot, right? She looks great. She's Amy Adams. I generally enjoy Amy Adams. I wouldn't say that like I rush out to the theater to see an Amy Adams movie the way I might, you know, Sandra Bullock or no, you have, somebody else. You have perspective on Amy Adams. Um, but when I do see Amy Adams, her work is always excellent. I mean, sure. she's been nominated for five Oscars. Yeah. So <laughs> let's not diminish Amy Adams. And yet the headlines that spun out from this Hollywood Reporter article were all about Amy Adams and what she said about whatever, Harvey Weinstein or what she said about um, pay equality. So I thought, okay, wow, like Amy Adams is getting in it. But then when I was linked back to the actual Hollywood Reporter article, to your point, Duanna, Amy Adams doesn't say much. She has one anecdote that we will get into in a minute but apart from that, it's Marty and Gillian, Gillian, um, who are doing the work of showing the work. In fact, Amy seems pretty reticent still, even in that room where she's working with two women who are creators, who have her back. She still, at several points in the interview, checks herself and says, maybe I shouldn't be saying this. It's okay. You've got like two powerhouses, two people who just made a show with you sitting beside you talking about the times that they took risks and talking about the, t the times that they had no fucks to give. Well, and in the interest of full disclosure, you know, if you read the Laney Gossip site, I have been, uh, I've been a Amy Adams, I don't know, shrugger because I don't really get it. And it's because I don't really get get a personality coming off her. I don't disagree with you for a minute that I think she's probably an actress who is extremely skilled, who disappears into the role. But as a celebrity person who, you know, has opinions and a style of talking and whatnot, there's often no there there. You know, that's when she becomes frustrating, when she's list billed as Adams in any of these kinds of conversations or any roundtables that we've talked about or whatever. It's a lot of prevaricating, which doesn't preclude her being a great actress, but it doesn't make her very useful in these kinds of conversations. Yes. Good news is we don't really need her. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right that among all the other things that are like curtains being pulled back and sort of a, I don't know, a, an offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot of a benefit of what's happened with Me Too is, yeah, these women are telling brutal stories about their career paths in a time when, up until recently, you weren't supposed to tell the failure stories. You weren't supposed to talk at length about your eating disorder like Marty Noxon or a descent into alcoholism, uh, you know, in a way that was anything other than, I've had some troubles in the past, but dot, dot, dot. Yeah. You're not supposed to say, uh, nobody wanted to buy my book. Like now it's like, oh, Gillian Flynn, we'll say Gillian the next time, just to yeah. even it out, uh, is a huge international bestseller, New York Times, number one, whatever. You're not, But if you think of who that person was back then when the book wasn't selling, it's like, eh, she was an aspiring writer. She was a wannabe. And you're not supposed to talk about those elements of your lack of success before the success because the idea was like it takes something away from you or it makes you less attractive. Bullshit. It's yep. the same idea. Talking about money, talking about struggles makes the roadmap easier for other people to see. So I found this a real 
achievement in and of itself. Me too. And of course, you know, for me, as we've mentioned before, and you have shared before, porn for me in these kinds of talks is what happens in a writer's room. And, um, you know, Gillian was a writer at Entertainment Weekly. Then, you know, she started writing books. Of course, she's so successful now. So she is now also transitioning into television writing and movie writing. Um, she talks about how, for her, writing was, when she's especially working on her books, a lonely or a solitary exercise. Being thrown into a writer's room, however, was a new experience for her. And she talks about the fact that, like, it was exhausting. Yeah, and that's very, very true. And I love that. I'm always asking you, when you're in a room on a, on a show, I'm always asking you to describe the writer's room experience. Again, you know, I guess the through thread of, of what we've been dealing today with on the this episode is what was unsexy is now sexy. It's pornographic for me. You I know? love you saying that. A yes. bunch of writers locked in a room breaking story, a phrase I heard from you. This is what you do when you break down an episode, you break down an act, you know, in a movie or whatever. All of you are in there together and a lot of it is sharing personal experiences or relating to somehow what your character might be going through by drawing on some a similar experience you may have had and all of you sharing that so that you can drill down to the point of answering the question, what will he, she do now? Right. And I think what's uh, interesting is that you latch on to that term breaking story and you use the term drill down because it's a the reason it's so exhausting, you say, like you say, oh, sharing stories about your life, like it sounds very cocktail-y and great, right? It is often about wrestling a story into shape or knowing that you have to get to X point and you're so far away from it and how the hell are we going to get there? That's part of the exhaustion and part of it is knowing that what somebody else is saying across the table, which is very valid, is mm -hmm. nonetheless not the right thing. But you can't just say, no, you're stupid. That's wrong because that's not helpful. So racking your brain to explain what it is that doesn't add up about what they're saying or they say that to you and then you shoulder mm -hmm. that blow and try to pivot from that and recover, it's it's a workout for sure. Um, so I love that she points that out. And a lot of writers, I think, who have done solo stuff like like books or or plays or whatever – don't even know that they've been doing those things and making those decisions. Yeah. Uh, when you do something like that in public, it's very, uh, it's very overt. If somebody had to ask you why you make every decision you do about Laney Gossip, why you take a particular tack on each article, having to articulate that and explain that out loud to somebody is a whole other mental load, mm -hmm. which uh, I think is, yeah, also not sexy. It's not cute to say oh, yeah, I work on an amazing show and, like, it does really well and we make a lot of money. And I go home a lot of nights tired and defeated and, like, unable to have conversation with people in my life because I'm super talked out. That's not sexy. No. You don't want to hear, like, what do you mean you're too tired? What yeah. do you mean you have no time to spend your money because you're, like, sleeping and going back in? Like, but, again, knowing it helps you to articulate it. Well, the downside of it, too, is that it's not cinematic in a way that, um, it hasn't been shown, right? So the the advantage of other types of work are that you can put it on screen and it can be visually arresting. 
writing and breaking story and what goes on in a writer's room and then what happens when you take what happens in the writer's room and then like have to sit in front of your laptop and put it down is not, you know, I, we're in TV and we've been working in TV for many years. Neither one of us would advocate showing that. Like (laughs) that is not, like you can montage it in a way, but it can't be more than like fucking a minute. So not the work of the work. No, no. the the any workplace show that you enjoy. Yeah, uh, from the West Wing to the Office and everything in between is ultimately about interpersonal drama because that's something you can show that's and right. care about. But you can't fucking flash dance this shit. Like you know, there's not going to be a welding scene or no. whatever. And every time you've seen a blinking cursor on screen in any show, you've been like, get on with it. It doesn't actually matter, right? That's right. That's right. So. I think that partly that's why when we do see writing shown cinematically, it has been romanticized where, um, I don't know, said writer sits in Tuscany and the lake looks beautiful. Um, and uh, and it immediately works. They immediately, yeah. <laughs> all they needed was that's a view right. of the lake and they're like, oh, it's flowing out of The me. wind blows and something happens. So there is a romanticism that has contributed to the fallacy of what goes on in uh, the writing process. But at the same time, for us, and I hope for all of you, this kind of information, when you read about it and you hear people talk about it, is sexy because that's the path that you have to get to, to to drill down to a story, to, as you say, wrestle wrestle a story into shape. Um, By the time your fingers hit the keyboard, often it just has to come out. A lot of times it's the beforehand. It, what go, it's what goes on in that room. It's what goes on in your head in the shower. Um, uh, that is the, the shit that can't really be um, filmed. Yeah, or quantified, articulated, whatever. And of course, I think the only arguably decent representation of this was adaptation, right? In which uh, the Charlie Kaufman movie where the pain of trying to write is is uh, kind of presented on screen. And I don't even know if I think that's a full articulation of it. All I really remember is the Meryl Streep sex scene yeah. uh, as relief from all the misery. But yeah, no, it's not cute to look at. No, so I really enjoyed that part of, of Flynn's sharing in this interview. And I definitely, as you said, enjoyed, uh, you know, the the information that she's given here about how deadlines change um, in terms of your success level. So, you know, what's so interesting is that she talks about delivering her next book, um, that she's behind a little bit. When she was writing her early books, nobody gave a fucking shit about when she was going to deliver the first draft in the manuscript because, you know, there weren't millions of people around the world waiting for it and hinging on it. There wasn't a publishing company saying, when's our next millions, millions, millions coming in now? She is the author of Gone Girls, so everybody's waiting for the next book, and that deadline is now a thing. Right. And is, a uh, yeah, there's, loosely speaking, more money, more problems, right? Like, there's, there's more and more people relying on you. That's how, that's, that's actually a really great example of more money, more problems. Right. Like, it's just, yeah, the more successful you are, the more people wait on you to make their days or their or their years, essentially. So the other part of this article that shows off something that is not that sexy usually and is not really explained is uh, Amy Adams talks about her stand-in, uh, whose name, I guess, is Reb. 
which is just a, a funny name to talk about, uh, to say Reb. And the thing with stand-ins that is, again, one of the reasons that it's not that attractive a, uh, you know, a job or something that's talked about is that they are, stand-ins are there for lighting and cameras. Uh, and this is not just so that stars, like, oh, they don't have to stand there forever, but like, you've heard this before, but the lights are incredibly shockingly hot and it's a full-time job just to stand under them while the cameras get all their moves and everything like that. So a stand-in has a real job uh, that is taxing in and of itself and allows the the star to be the person who, you know, is using their mental power to remember the lines or whatever it is. But Amy Adams talks about how uh, one day she was standing around and was mistaken for her own stand-in because they were done up in similar scars and et cetera. And thinking that Amy Adams was Reb, somebody grabbed her by the arm and then went, <gasps> oh my gosh, like, I'm so sorry, Ms. Adams, I would never, I blah, 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 you're not Reb. And her point was, yeah, but are you grabbing her like that? Like, it's not okay to do that to her either. Yeah. Despite the fact that she's not Amy Adams, you still don't get to grab her. Yeah. Um, which is not, I don't think, a story that we've really heard before. No. No. And, and it's, it speaks to certainly hierarchies that exist in every business, in every office, that the way you speak to a CEO or a managing director is not the way you speak to the receptionist. Right. Which is, you know, a problem, right? Yeah. Like that's not how it should be, obviously. It's the Julia Roberts moment in Pretty Woman. It's the Julia Roberts moment, or there was a great... Uh, Twitter meme last week about a guy who was like, you know, uh, seeing the woman insult me. There was a, a guy tweeted about a woman cut him off in traffic and, and used a horrific racial epithet to insult him. Uh, and he's like watching her walk in and see that I was the person who was going to interview her for the job that she was late for was priceless. Yeah. Um, yeah. People speak differently to people based on who they think they are. It's not okay. And you can see people who you know would never do that in their place of work, doing it at the coffee shop or to, you know, or getting annoyed with somebody who's taking too long to make a turn or whatever. But it was a really interesting thing to see Amy Adams have seen. A lot of time that behavior is kept away from the, the delicate eyes. Again, it's all about protection, right? Remember when all the Weinstein stuff was coming out and people would say, well, I never knew anything like that. I never saw anything like that. And it's not as easy as saying, well, they're lying. It was usually, yeah, disgusting behavior doesn't necessarily happen in front of people who are powerful enough to talk about it, right? It happens in front of other powerless people. So I thought this was really interesting. It was literally only because they were both wearing the same wig or they both had the same scar yeah. on their arm or whatever that Amy Adams got to see maybe what happens to Reb all the time. But it also illuminates that it happens on every level. Like we tend to think that condescending behavior happens from star to minion. Right. And in this example, what I think is really interesting is that whoever was grabbing Reb was likely a production assistant. Like a non-bold face, maybe not that much more powerful person than Reb to begin with. Do you sure. know what I somebody mean? Somebody in wardrobe needed her. Somebody like a whatever, a grip needed her to get out That's of the way right. or whatever. Yeah. Someone who probably was lower down in the credits. 
You know, we're not talking about call sheet, like first, second, third on the call sheet either. No. Yeah. And so it's amazing how, as you're saying, the things that are not okay, we, all of us have been conditioned in a way to buy into it. Um, Where it comes from is a different conversation, but that conditioning then filters down through people at all levels of the organization, at all levels of the set, at all levels of the project. So that, you know, you, when you talk about a rot in behavior, it's a complete systematic, it's, it's, when you talk about rot in behavior, this is what words like institutionalized mean, where it's embedded into everybody, all members of a community, as opposed to just the people who make the biggest decisions. Right. Because what it is, is the idea that this production is more important than any one human, right? So the grip moving her out of the way or whatever it is, is like, we can't have any delays. We got to go. You just grab the thing you need to make sure that whatever, that the director makes his day, as opposed to going, uh, or all human beings get a basic level of respect and it doesn't take that much longer to say, excuse no. me, step aside yeah. or whatever. But it's a lesson I think for all of us, you know, because throughout the last year or so, as we've been identifying bad behaviors and we've been yelling at each other and yelling at certain people who definitely deserve it, I think that for, and this is to borrow your phrase from last week, as Mary Sunshine as it sounds, none of us are innocent. Like, you know, when we talk about shedding a conditioning and um, getting rid of stereotypes and getting rid of behaviors that all of us have condoned, yes, some heroes and leaders got rid of it sooner or were never conditioned by it in the first place. For the rest of us, we grew up living in these times, in these, in these places, in these environments that upheld these structures. Of course, we're all going to have to look inward at some point. Yeah, it's that great word, unlearn, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that you are doing X, Y, or Z because you're a dick. It's because you learned it somewhere or other, and so you have to unlearn it. And my favorite thing, in order to unlearn something, you have to accept that you were wrong without intention, right? Sometimes people get really upset about, no, I'm not wrong because I never meant to imply that or blah, 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 whatever. It's like, okay. You didn't have to mean to. You didn't have to mean to. You can still be wrong. And it's like nobody gets through life without making mistakes, without having to course correct sometimes. And like, just go ahead and acknowledge it. I was once part of a workplace that was pretty toxic and our boss played us off against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a male boss mm-hmm. and uh, the rest of the team were were women and it became favoritism and competition to the point where by the end when I left, I didn't leave under good circumstances in the sense of I was just really unhappy and, you know, submitted my resignation. And it took me a long time to understand that that kind of workplace modeling was not the only way to work. So I took it with me to my next workplace. Right. Like you unconsciously acted the same way. That's right. To protect yourself, to boost yourself up. 
because that is how it was modeled for me. Right. The, the boss at the old job was very successful and, and made, like, there were a lot of wins that I saw him achieve. Mm-hmm. And so when you see that, that becomes the only model that you know. Luckily, the next place I joined was an amazingly holistic organization, um, also like with women, with a woman in charge. And she was able to model for me what a healthy workplace that was collaborative. Um, competition is certainly welcome. We talk about it all the time, how competition can be healthy. It can make you better when it's under, like when you're competing within the right guidelines. Sure. Um, and, you know, you and I have both written on the site about how sometimes you need competition to push you into the next gear. Right. But she was able to foster that sense of healthy competition without um, undermining people, without working in an environment where um, when someone delivered good work, it doesn't mean they're better than you. Right. It just is a standalone piece of great work that is waiting for you to join it. And to me, the most important thing in that story that you're telling is she didn't castigate you for behaving in a way that was not the way she wanted to run her business, right? She can show and model a way, but also you made a mistake. Maybe you made it several times. That's okay. Like, this is the other thing. People get so afraid to make mistakes that they uh, are paralyzed and mistakes are going to happen. And that brings us all the way back to how much I love uh, Marty Knox and and, uh, where are we at? Jillian? We're back to Jillian. Jillian Flynn. Uh, talking about missteps or mistakes or whatever, because if you present yourself as somebody who has never made an error, you pretend that you're kind of on a different plane, on a different level. And maybe that's where I am frustrated with Amy Adams, who has never said, oh, I really should have done this. I wish I had done blah, blah, blah. Instead of always saying, well, no, I didn't think it was my place to talk about Jennifer Lawrence or whatever it is she says here when they're talking about salary. Tell us about mistakes you did make as opposed to uh, things you thought better of and didn't do. That that It's always more helpful to hear about uh, the things that didn't go quite right. And our final story of the day is about the Oprah Winfrey Network. It's an article that appeared in Wired that I couldn't wait to, you know, devour about how um, OWN has figured out what their niche is and the kinds of creators that are part of the own family, excuse me, and the kinds of creators who are part of the own family who are living up to owns, I don't know, for lack of a better word, branding. Um, own, of course, stumbled out of the gate. This is Oprah Winfrey's own network and we all heard about like the ratings and whatever, but in the last couple of years has really found its lane and is nicely humming along. And I really enjoyed this article that explained um, and sort of, you know, lived up to and illustrated a common theme here on the podcast, which is specificity and universality. Mm-hmm. They had they targeted and narrowed down to what content they were specifically going to focus on. And in doing that, in finding a specific and particular voice, the universal appreciation and acknowledgement of that content arrived, came calling, paid attention. Um, 
so that was one of the things I really, you know, really wanted to, to talk about and why I pitched this. And the second thing was the, the names, the kind of names who were being brought up, these new names. Where we've talked about the, throughout this podcast, the unsexiness. New people, people who 15 years ago, 20 years ago would not have had articles written about them and would not have appeared in articles are now um, getting their due and are now becoming celebrities in their own right. Ava DuVernay, for example, is someone who is working with OWN, developing several shows, um, and of course, the primary one among them being Queen Sugar, which has been acclaimed. Ava DuVernay is doing all kinds of other things independent of OWN, but there are other showrunners who are making their mark and really getting our attention. Now they are, but for such a long time, not the case, right? So one of the things uh, that's so interesting in, in this article is that the first thing they sort of describe about OWN is the idea behind the network. Uh, and so the quote is, the goal was to, quote, take the idea of a person and embody her belief structure and vision, unquote, in every aspect of the network. And that's uh, from the president of OWN, that that was the idea. So that's really esoteric. That's a really vague-ass thing to want to do. And I think we all kind of knew that, like, maybe it's about, what, spirituality or remembering your spirit or whatever OWN was kind of saying at the time and how is Super Soul Sundays about this and so forth. And what's happened is that where OWN has found its real legs is in scripted programming, right? In they have Queen Sugar, they have Greenleaf, uh, and so the article here in Wired is also focusing on uh, one of its newest showrunners, Mara Brock-Akeel. And so what kills me about this is that I had the opportunity to hear Mara Brock-Akeel speak a few years ago at the Toronto Screenwriting Conference, and I did not know her name before, as I suspect most of you don't know her name now. And it's kind of preposterous because she's been showrunning for a long, long time, but not in the spotlight. So her story, and she was great. Talk about talking about, uh, you know, your missteps and things that happened and so forth. She really went into her whole path of how things started. She created girlfriends uh, when she was like super young and they were like, yeah, yeah, great. Here's a, you know, a showrunner who's actually done this before to help you out. Uh, and she kind of had to wrestle control back of that show. She created the show The Game, which is like huge in circles of people who watch it and yet never really gets to the level of, you know, acclaim. And she created Being Mary Jane, which is of course the Gabrielle Union show, which again has been killing it for five seasons but doesn't make the headlines, doesn't get the attention. Well, I should mention, too, you talk about Gabrielle Union and Girlfriends, of course, was Tracy Ellis Ross. Of course. But again, before, far before Tracy Ellis Ross right. was a name, even though she was still Diana Ross's daughter at the time, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, it was happening below the surface. Obviously, some of that is about the kinds of programs that were seen as only for BET, only for black people, as opposed yeah. to being on main networks. Being yeah. Mary Jane is a delicious, like, it's a drama about a woman and her life, but like, for some reason, we know what reason, 
Allie McBeal was seen as universal, being Mary Jane was seen as, no, it's only for BET. And as a result, Mara Brock Akeel, uh, who has done many of these projects, not all of them, with her husband, Salim Akeel, was seen as not a mainstream showrunner, right? When Shonda Rhimes happened, and I'm not trying to create any beef between them, but when everybody was like, oh my God, this huge uh, revolutionary black female showrunner who has done all this stuff and created all these hours of TV. I'm sure somewhere mm-hmm. Mara Brockakiel was like, ahem, <laughs> ahem, not in any way maligning Shonda, but because yeah. she's been working in relative obscurity for a long, long time. So when you say things about things being different, what's different about her and the reason that she's tied into this own revitalization is because uh, the show that is kind of being touted as the one that's really going to save the network is Love Is dot, 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 which is the, the tale of she and her husband meeting and falling in love uh, in the 90s in L.A. Uh, and so it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like Issa Rae and Insecure, wherein when Issa Rae had created the web series of The Adventures of Awkward Black Girl, she became not only the writer, but the star. Uh, Mara Brock-Akeel is now becoming not only a, you know, a showrunner who has great ideas and so forth, but somebody whose own story is worthy of being seen on the screen. This is what is shifting things. It's exciting, but it's like, you know, it's long overdue. It's long overdue in so many different ways and so many different layers. As you said, and as we've been saying, it's these creators, these the unsexy people for, I mean, I'm not mean, like, I don't mean unsexy as an attractive, but the unsexy people who are not the ones who are in front of the camera, who are finally becoming subjects in and of themselves. And then their subjects themselves, literally in this case, in Mara's case, her story is the subject. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's, that that story is worthy enough of being told, right? That it's like, well, our story and how we came up and who we turned into uh, is in itself compelling enough to tell to everybody. In other words, as you just said, specificity is universal, right? Like the specificity of their own story of the, like, without decorating it too much, there's some fictionalization, I think, and whatever, is exciting enough and compelling enough to be a story that everybody is going to want to watch. And it premiered uh, just under a week ago. Uh, Canada's on a little bit of a delay. And I think, you know, the reviews say, yeah, it's happening. It's there. Yeah. But what is most interesting to me about this person and whether or not you need to know this name and why you need to know this name is because, as I said, I just listed I don't know how many hours of uh, her show running, to say nothing of shows she worked on before she was a showrunner. Uh, but a few weeks ago when we were talking about A Night in the Writer's Room, the variety event that was roundly criticized for having no women on the panel, uh, one of the panelists was Salim Akil, her husband, for his show Black Lightning. Again, not that he shouldn't be there, but she's been the one who's been running all these shows for all this time for this many years. And then they choose the dude to, to be the one who's going to, you know, kind of break out and start to become a household name. It just really struck me as like, wow, this is what we're looking at. This is what we're up against. This is what own gets to do in terms of making these people 
more names. And then on a bigger scale, owns niche or owns lane, and it is like quite clearly identified in this Wired article is they realized that they wanted to produce content for specifically black American women. Mm -hmm. And that they wanted black American women to see themselves in these characters, in these storylines. Not just as one person in that show that everybody else is six or seven white people, so they have to uphold everything. But black women in all forms, they can be meek, they can be strong, they can be wealthy, they can be poor, they can be complicated, they can be simple. You know, oftentimes we talk about a certain culture as monolithic, um, that, you know, there's that phrase like blackness is not a monolith. Right. You know, it's not just one thing. No, there's no set of characteristics right. that describes being black, uh, being even like a, a Anything. black person in North America, let alone being That's a right. black person across the globe. Or yes, of course, insert any culture, any… That's uh, right. Yes. Although the, you know, in culture, in storytelling, often it has been whiteness that has allowed to be as varied and is differentiated and distinct and not people of other cultures, people of other backgrounds. What they're doing at OWN is they're saying, okay, we have made some progress, but what we're doing here is that we are giving you the full breadth or at least as close to the full breadth as possible. Right. Well, and again, I gotta, I gotta be a stand again for uh, Mara Brockakiel, MBA. I'm just gonna shorten it right up. You know, uh, one of the ways that that breadth was kind of commodified and shown was uh, on Sex in the City, right? Everybody got to choose, are you a Samantha, are you a Miranda, or whatever. Everybody liked to sort of project themselves onto those characters. That's right. But, of course, Girlfriends, her show, Mm -hmm. premiered before Sex in the City. Same exact concept, but the idea of there being four black women who are all different was not considered universal enough. It was not assumed that white audiences or non-black audiences would choose to project themselves on those characters in the same way, even though it was the same thing. You have a, you know, whatever, a funny one, a shy one, a whatever. Um, So I I guess what I'm saying is the effort has been made and the time for own is here, but people have been trying all this time and it's not until now that you sort of go, Oh, of course those things are universal. Of course of course, those are things that everybody wants to see. And, you know, and of course now you can point to Girls Trip, among other things, as proof that, yes, of course people mm-hmm. will watch and project themselves on those characters as, I think we hope, uh, people of all cultures will watch and project themselves onto the funny or mean or straight-laced or ridiculous characters in Crazy Rich Asians uh, that it doesn't... People of all audiences will find somebody to identify with because they're not a monolith. Yeah. And on a final note, to your point about Crazy Rich Asians, the same week that Crazy Rich Asians comes out, uh, Jenny Han's book series, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, uh, the movie adaptation coming out on Netflix, teen rom-com about a girl who writes letters, the boys find out. You close your eyes, typically that is going to star a girl who doesn't look like Lara Condor. Right. Lara Jean in the books. Right. And uh, 
part of the point of that is that those books are super charming, as you know, um, but the, they are specifically about uh, an Asian-American set of three sisters, uh, and that is neither whitewashed nor blended together in the show or in the movie. You know, it is as they appear in the book. So, yeah, there's suddenly more, there's more places for you to choose. Are you a Kitty or a Lara Jean or a Margot? Same idea. But also, we all recognize love hijinks in high school. Oh, been there. Of course. But of course you have. And yeah, it is universal. And the specificity of being the middle sister among two and, you know, uh, to a widow or father and whatever also allows the universal to come out. Well, we've just made a case for the unsexiness to be sexy. For sure. Uh, And whether that brings us back around to sexiness again, because I wonder whether next week we're going to wind up talking a little bit more about uh, what makes Netflix tick uh, in the face of all this stuff, which is like "Mm, business, algorithms, whatever. But it also might be bringing back the rom-com. So, you know, there's in every angle, the behind the scenes nuts and bolts produce the sexy. Next week is also our final episode of season two. Oh, well, God, now there's more pressure. So you guys need to send us your notes about the season, about this episode, about what you related to two episodes ago, any sort of work anecdotes. We want to read them. We want to share them. We want to learn from them. So please keep sending us your notes and keep sending us your stories. We will be back then uh, with all of your comments on board. We love them. We love hearing what you think about what we say, how we sound, uh, our digressions about body uh, surgery as uh, as we, you know, we got to put a toe in today. Uh, <laughs> pretend I didn't say the bit about put a toe in. <laughs> and thanks for listening on Spotify or on iTunes or on Google Play. Definitely leave us your comments. Subscribe. We never tell you to subscribe. It just occurred to me. Please subscribe. We love popping up in your phone or device every week. Have a great Canada Day. Have a great Fourth of July holiday. This is uh, probably the last episode of Show Your Work that you'll listen to before those two holidays. Be safe. Eat a lot. Um, put on your sweatshirts. <laughs> don't get bit my Don't get bit by mosquitoes. And we'll be back soon. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.